Greyhound leader to track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Ahoy there, and thank you for downloading the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. And I'm Tate. Horror of Fang Rock is released today from the good people at Demon Music Group. This is another absolutely beautiful vinyl release from them. It's a gorgeous cover. You've got the Fang Rock lighthouse with an eerie green glow coming out of the lamp room and the rutan climbing up the side. The photos, they don't really do justice to how vivid and bright the green is. It's, it's really, really striking. Uh, inside, the, the cover art is as gorgeous as always. You've got the little Radio Times style notes on the on the sleeves uh, with the information as, it, as if the episode's broadcast. And then the discs themselves, uh, instead of the splatter pattern that we often get, we've got this rutin-like, gorgeous, amorphous green blob in the middle of the disc, really, really evocative of the story. The last time there was an episode about this story, two of the podcasters ended up dead, and the other one went mad. Uh, you guys sure you want to go ahead with this? Arr, the beast of Fang Rock won't get me, because I'm wearing as, a cable sweater. As long as there's no mysterious fog sweeping in across the sea, we'll be fine. And I don't think there's ever going to be any fog today, but oh, oh it is a bit foggy, actually. I wonder thought that. Absolutely, full ahead and damn the consequences. <laughs> oh, wait, was that a pirate voice rather than a crusty old lighthouse keeper voice? That's a fine distinction to make, isn't it? The precise point at which crustiness kicks in. Because uh, you've not got a story if you haven't got at least someone making that crustiness threshold in, in these circumstances. I was going it... for Reuben, but I think I ended up more as Captain uh, Pike from The Smugglers. <laughs> <laughs> You described as Hampshire accents these on the um, the uh, the data subtitles, whatever they're called, the info info texts on the uh, on the DVD. Uh, That's they, uh, specific. Yeah, I, have, I don't yeah. Know, It's hard to pin them down to a particular county quite to that extent. Yeah. But I suppose it is Hampshire, isn't it? Because they're just off. That's the coast. There is it. Well, in the in the novelization, he says it's the Channel Islands, and they're inspecting uh, French visitors. Mm. But my UK geography is so poor because the Flannan Isle lighthouse that the story is based on is actually way off the coast of Scotland, which is, I believe, quite a bit in the other direction. Yeah, yeah, but hey, it's it's all lighthousey and rocky. That's the main that's the main thing, isn't it? Yeah, my my knowledge of the geography of the South is, is equally bad um, of, uh, of counties down there. Uh, so this, this is quite a good story, isn't it? I think we've uh, we've all experienced it in different ways as well this week. Um, Pete, you, you've had listened to the audio, yes, because it's it, it's it's up on Audible uh, already, and then this is the one with that's the version with Louise Jameson adding a narration to the uh, to the actual TV soundtrack, uh, and it, and that is a really good one. It's one of the, one of the best ones of the of the series, I think, and that, and that's the recording that's now coming out on this fancy vinyl. I think, isn't it? It's the uh, it, it's this Louise Jameson that's version. It. That's it. Oh, but, but actually, Louise Jameson version doesn't narrow it down, does it? That's not the best. <laughs> Marking it from the other versions, but I know what I mean. Um, yeah, and, and so, so, and and you can. It's one with really well written linking narrations because they've got so much atmosphere to convey. Uh, um, we'll go into that in a, in a bit, I'm sure. But yeah, it's really it's really well done. And you revisited the target book, Jason. Yes, so just by way of a long-winded explanation to delay us from getting into the actual content of the show, 
I am currently in the middle of my own marathon rewatch of the series, two episodes, 45 minutes per night. And that's uh, my Twitter feed at DR Who, Doctor Who Novels. And as of last night, I am up to parts three and four of The Wheel in Space, which, by the way, is sucking my will to live in a very depressing fashion. <laughs> but you've got the space pirates to look forward to, speaking of piracy. <laughs> you know, season five is doing great, and all of a sudden you get hit with the left jab of The Wheel in Space, and then the powerful right overhand cross that is The Dominator's. <laughs> that's 11 episodes that's five and a half days that is almost a week of my life that is lost to the doldrums of the patrick trout era but to make a long story even longer i didn't want to interrupt my marathon by watching something from uh, the mid-1970s because i didn't want to disrupt the visual flow you know, heaven forbid somebody destroy the visual flow of fuzzy recon construction <laughs> The wheel in space, followed well, by dominators and all its cheap glory. Dead. People like them didn't get the opportunity to step away and watch something else for three episodes, so why should you? That's the thing, isn't it? That's right. If I were living in a lighthouse, I wouldn't have a television at all. <laughs> so I decided to pluck the uh, novelization out of my uh, pile, uh, being that I am Doctor Who novels rather than Doctor Who video, so I may as well take the novel approach to this. Uh, most Remarkable thing about the novelization is, number one, it's only about 95 pages long, so it takes about 20 minutes to read if you're going slowly. And the other point is, this is Terrence Dix novelizing his own rehearsal scripts, so there's scenes in the book that were never filmed because I think at that point the budget was maybe uh, six bottle caps and a uh, pile of sawdust, so they didn't have a lot to... So there's this whole dramatic scene in the book where they... Lighthouse crew go down to the rocks and they rescue the passengers from the yacht one by one. And that is completely unfilmable, even at Ealing. So it's in the book, but they never got around to actually filming it. And that Terrence Dix being Terrence Dix, there is a funny observation or jab in every paragraph. So every paragraph is some funny bit of observational humor. So in a way, just reading the novelization was possibly even more fun than watching the TV episodes would have been, which I, which I didn't do. And that's why I, I didn't mean, do my homework. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was having to read through the, the novelization as well uh, this morning. It, it, it is so good, like you say. Because um, I was watching the story yesterday, and I rewound it three times. I couldn't make out what Ruben says when he comes off the, um, the, the sort of speak pipe thing after the uh, the the rescued people from the ship ask about a, a room for Adelaide to sleep in. He sort of mutters something, oh, that's the trouble with the gentry, and he goes, rrr, rrr. and uh, I could not make it out. Um, and he says they, they always want, um, they always want run round after or something like that. Um, but I, yeah, couldn't, couldn't make out his dialogue at all in that. So I uh, went to the novelization. I'm assuming it's the same. It sounds, sounds like it fits anyway. The novelization actually has much more expanded dialogue. Like Alan mm -hmm. Rowe's character mm -hmm. in the book says, I, I'm Colonel Skinsale. I am the member of parliament for Thurley. That's nice, meaty dialogue. Tells you where you are. And then you go to the online episode transcript, and it's just, I'm Skinsale, member for Thurley. Which, when I was an 11-year-old American, that made no sense. More importantly, Mark and I have now both done Ruben accents during this recording, so I think we should have a poll going on the show notes. Which of us is doing the better uh, Ruben, crusty old lighthouse, lighthouse keeper voice? 
<laughs> the eyes and the night. I'm not even going to. No, I can't even. I was going to try a sarcastically bad one, and I can't even. <laughs> um, it's impossible to think about light, crusty old lighthouse keepers in Britain without thinking of Fraggle Rock, because that was the the Muppet version. The the, the Muppet spinoff that uh, over here was introduced by. Uh, I know every country had it different, I think, but ours it was a proper um, proper old uh, lighthouse keeper who introduced it, and the Fraggles all lived underneath his lighthouse, didn't they? So yeah, the, I think they're 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 a horror of Fraggle Rock uh, mock covers. <laughs> Going back to the early nineteen nineties, you can find that there might be some of the first things ever posted on the internet would be pictures of the horror fang rock but with a fraggle stuck on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a major Doctor Who connection there because I believe the original lighthouse keeper in the uh, UK version of Fraggle Rock was Fulton Mackay from Doctor Who and the Silurians. That's right, yeah. And he was a nearly doctor, wasn't he, as well, I think, at one point, yeah. See, in the States, yeah. our Fraggle Rock didn't have a lighthouse, so I, I missed that whole I missed that whole vibe. Oh, that's because it's like, it makes so much sense with that. <laughs> Oh, a Fraggle Rock. That's amazing. I can just about remember Fraggle Rock. I remember the theme tune and, and the little green little builder things, I think. But that's uh, that's about as much as I can remember. Doozers. Doozers, yeah. <laughs> just tenuously like the um, horror of Fang Rock. It's very much about the class system because you've got the little de- the little doozers who are – is it doozers, doozers? Yeah, who are, who, are, who are doing all the work down there. And then you've got the sort of, okay, no, this isn't really got legs. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, they, but in, in, uh, yeah, in, in Fang Rock, the, that, that, the class system really is set out as being the sort of the framework on which the whole thing hangs, I think. And, and each character, each, each of the characters behaves in a way that sort of is, is, is traps them. They're sort of trapped in, in who they are and what their role in society is. And is the downfall of, of, of each of them sort of relates to that. And I just love that. I just think it's so British. <laughs> yeah, so the, the characters in this, I think, are so beautifully worked out. The motivations are, are so clear. The way they interact with each other is, is so well worked out and logical. Yeah, the balance is just is, is just right, and and they're all that to a certain extent they're stock characters, and I don't mean that in a in a, in a negative way, but they're, they're characters that you would recognise from other TVs from seventies British TV shows. They're, 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 they're the standard characters, the people from upstairs downstairs, you know, or they're people from uh, Charles Dickens' ghost stories. You, the, the viewers will, will have a handle on these people already, and then we get to see them being put into this situation against an alien uh, and it enables the actors to just go that little bit further with them all um, this, this, I don't know if it was because I was listening on audio or just because I know it so well already but this time, coming to it for the first time in a couple of years, I've come at it from a much more sympathetic take on Adelaide than ever before, like the first few times I watched this, it's, she's just that shrieking annoying nightmare of a, of a woman and thank God when Leela smacks her that's, <laughs> that's really, I mean, it's funny it's one of the, that's, cause this is such a serious and, and deathly and, and scary story but it, it's got real moments of comedy in it as well, although they aren't, they aren't gags necessarily, apart from when Tom has a bit of a go later uh, uh, but, um, but, but yeah I, I'm not, this is my radical take on it for this podcast actually, Adelaide is doing the best she can she's a she's a secretary she knows that the, the moment where she has her meltdown is when her, she just gets casually told her lover's just been murdered by an alien and she doesn't and she doesn't believe that she thinks he's been murdered by the other guy which is actually a fairly logical thing conclusion to have come to it's quite sensible from her point of view to conclude that everyone else is mad and she's the only sane person there yeah. um because his death is more brutal in a way than, uh, you know, kind of getting zapped with an electronic effect, isn't it? Like he's fallen from the top tower. 
um, because you know it's just so rocky on the island underneath them and everything. And you just you you imagine his his kind of broken body lying there in a way that um, you know just getting kind of zapped on the head by uh, by the root and is is a little less horrific in a way because it's uh, it's a bit more sci-fi. And then they carry his body up the stairs into the lighthouse and drop the corpse down on the bunk bed right in front of Adelaide because they need his body to uh, get the diamonds, which will solve the plot at the end of the show. Mm. So his body needs to be confronted with Adelaide. And again, she's a 19th century secretary to a private financier. What is she going to have as a frame of reference for dealing with (laughs) alien invasion on a pile of rocks? there's a really nice moment from Louise Jameson where 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 Leela has to say to her, "Have you not seen death before?" Yeah, and she she could say it scoldingly, but she actually says it like as if she's talking to a child. She's realizing that this woman is just a child who hasn't had any of the proper uh, any of the proper milestones in life, like seeing your first corpse. As far as Leela's <laughs> concerned, she sort of takes pity on her for a bit, but then she goes back to being annoyed by her. <laughs> Two hours earlier, these characters had been at a casino in France, gambling and making plans to uh, game stop the British economy, which is exactly what uh, Colonel Palmerdale is trying to, sorry, Lord Palmerdale is trying to do with the insider trading so there's a whole short story that could be written a non-sci-fi short story about what those characters are up to in france before they crash land on fang rock uh the point that i was going to make is all these characters are one-dimensional with the exception of skin sale who has two full dimensions twice as many as all the others (laughs) but the acting is so strong yeah. And the dialogue is so – there's so much dialogue that is unrelated to the plot, and there are so many side conversations and debates between the characters. Like among the lighthouse keepers, you have Ben and Ruben spend much of the first act just debating what's better in a lighthouse, coal or oil, electricity <laughs> or oil. And then you have Skinsale and Palmerdale are always trying to verbally joust and one-up each other, and it's nothing – to do with the plot at all and you wouldn't have any of that if this were a new series episode because you'd only have half the real estate to work with but the actors get into character every single one of them there's not a bad acting note in the bunch that is fun to watch even if the characters disappear perhaps uh in order of uh capability yeah but the best actors are still there in, in part four yeah good uh cast and a really good uh, setting because you see all the conflicts and it keeps the dialogue a lot more lively as opposed yeah. to Wheel in Space which I'm suffering through right now where the dialogue is just <laughs> empty filler that serves no purpose. There's a whole scene in the Wheel in Space where Zoe has to explain to Jamie how a tape recording works. <laughs> Horror that's thing, right? Bogged down with that sort of thing. No, yeah, and that's why Leela is such a great character. She will just nod and, and do her best. And, uh, and and Jamie on a good day, when they remember to write Jamie correctly, someone will just give him a gadget and he'll go, oh, I, right, sceptically, and get on with it. Um, right, he'll figure yeah, it out through age of instinct. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, or like the problem they had with, Kat- with Katerina, where they were on the verge of having to explain to her what a door handle was every time. And it's like, <laughs> don't, the story doesn't need you to do that. But um, that old, that, that, one of the things I wrote down, just, just this old V new theme that runs through it, that's a real part of, of ghost stories generally and, and, and folk horror as well. Um, obligatory mention of folk horror as we're talking about something set in the past in, in England. Uh, but I think it does qualify because um, the, yeah, uh, 
that, yeah, you've got the electricity versus oil, and then you've got the, the new money versus the old money among the, the, the rich ones. You've got the Lord, who is who is less brash and seems like a decent sort, but that's because he's inherited all of his money and hasn't had to fight for it, whereas you've got the, the nasty money-grabbing um, MP who, uh, who, who has crawled his way to his money, you know, uh, and, uh, and that's immoral in, in, in another way. So I love the way that that, that balances and that the doctor and, and the, I guess this is one of those stories, one of those rare stories where the doctor is the character who is most like the audience because to every, like Lila doesn't know what a lighthouse is. So she doesn't know that it's wrong that the light isn't on, but as soon as they arrive, the doctor does. And they, and they that, that, just that lovely setup, like a lighthouse without a light. It's just, mm. it's an unsettling concept right from the off, uh, just with, with the fog and everything around it. Um, yeah, it's unusual for the Doctor to be the most, the, the most modern, the, the most contemporary. That's what I'm looking for. The most contemporary character in it, really. Certainly in the way he presents himself. And the way the Doctor reacts to the characters around him. Everyone in the background thinks that they're the star of the episode. So Palmerdale thinks the episode is about him trying to make a fortune in insider trading. And Vince thinks the episode is about him, the young, innocent lighthouse keeper who's learning the ropes from his two crusty old compatriots. And the doctor just comes in as a wild card and completely flips the script. So there's the moment where he bursts into the crew, crew and says, you know, in the morning when they all be dead, anybody interested? <laughs> and in the novelization, Terrence Dick says he delivers that line grimly. So Terrence Dick writes this line and imagines that Tom Baker is going to come in and his very somber voice with his eyes bugging out and Tom Baker being Tom Baker he finds a more and it's a good line but he finds an even better way to play the line so instead of reciting it grimly he does the line with bright cheery <laughs> optimism which completely doesn't match the words yeah. and it gets great reactions out of the supporting cast especially Adelaide yeah yeah and a huge grin on his face as well as, as he delivers it uh, it's fantastic that and in contrast to the rest of the story, where he's he's much uh, much more angry and uh, and kind of bitter, isn't he, than in a lot of stories? Which a lot of the, the kind of the behind the scenes account seems to be because Tom Baker had to go and work in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, I was from his... to Birmingham. I, I, I now live about three miles from where the, uh, the the studio was that they filmed this. It's now been flattened and replaced with a care home, but it's called, still called the Pebble Mill Care Home. The, the name has been preserved, but there is no blue plaque, sadly, for uh, for the moment that Doctor Who was filmed there. I could sneak out and put one up, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you walk inside, they have glossy blow up black and white photos with a production of Horror of Fang Rock, the only Doctor Who story made at Pebble Mill. They absolutely should do, and if they don't, I'm going to try and gorilla get some in there. I think. Is, uh, in fact, if it was called the Horror of Fang Rock Care Home, I would definitely be up for going in there myself. But um, well, a spiral staircase. Actually, no, that staircase would not be any good, would it? <laughs> not for old people in wheelchairs. There are if real practical go, reasons why they don't. <laughs> if somebody can go into the Amazon streaming release of The Vanishing, which is the Scottish movie based on the same story, and have a, a long part of the movie with a pop-up trivia note about Horror of Fang Rock being based on the same event. Somebody should go into the Pebble Mill Care Home and do a whole little <laughs> shrine to Horror of Fang Rock in the corner. Absolutely. And, uh, and be careful of slippery staircases, particularly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the room goes around electrocuting people. It could just as easily just leave its slime trail and they could all be picked off one by one on that staircase as they would slip as they go uh, rushing around. It's a pile of old folks with broken hips lying at the bottom of the staircase. <laughs> 
<laughs> Scattered diamonds. <laughs> it's a great story for Leela, I think. And I guess, mm. although I think she, she's run around a little bit, maybe she's gone, she's back to being maybe even more more like her um, face of evil self. Uh, but I, uh, just she's, the, the primal side of her is really foregrounded. But then there's been a break. Maybe people are thinking some people haven't remembered her. So this is a bit of a just reminding everyone that this this new character is really different to her predecessors, and that's really put in the foreground. And and, and I mean, Louise Jameson is just one of the best actors who's ever been in the show. Full stop. And so and, and this was the story, wasn't it? Where she had a she finally had a, a words with Tom Baker and basically told told him to stop dicking about and upstaging her. And um, uh, and and eventually, and, and there was one particular scene she she says in an interview where where that she she kept just stopping and saying, "No, Tom, that's not what we did in rehearsal. This is my line. Stop, stop stepping in front. Stop cutting into me." And on, on about the third take, he finally did it. And uh, and and she said that from then on, they they got on more um a bit, a bit more respectfully for, for each other. Which is funny because this is this is the end of the serious Philip Hinchcliffe era Tom Baker because we're at the beginning of the grand. Williams era, and this is where he just completely starts to act against the script and lose the plot and just go and do his own thing. So this is, I mean, he's, he's reined in in this story, but after that, it just becomes more and more farcical, and especially after Louise Jameson leaves. But this, this is really the beginning of the second Tom Baker era. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I wonder, and of course, it, it's the first, this is the first story to be produced after all of the, uh, the 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 controversy from the from Mary Whitehouse and her viewers mm-hmm. and listeners campaign against the excesses of season 14's cliffhangers in particular, and it made that that there's that they, the, you know, the deadly assassin cliffhanger with the Doctor being strangled underwater is particularly highlighted as having gone too far, and uh, and the BBC acknowledged that it had gone too far publicly, and I wonder if that's a factor why none of the cliffhangers in this story are of anyone being attacked by a monster that's about to kill them. And, and I love them. I, I really like these. They're, they're all quite sort of just unusually paced for Doctor Who. Like you've got the first one is a ship with some characters you haven't met crashes and it's really ominous and and, it, and that's the end. But the, and, and that really makes you want to come back next week to find out who of those screaming people has survived R- rather than meeting a character and then having somebody being about to be drowned. Uh, and what's, what's episode two's? Uh, episode three, though, is the other is, is probably my favourite cliffhanger in, in the entire uh, entirety of Doctor Who. That yeah. total quiet, still moment, and his line, "I've, I've locked it in with us." That uh, is Tom Baker's absolute best. Yeah. Uh, episode two is they're standing in the crew room, and oh. Ruben has just been electrocuted and killed off screen, but we don't know it yet. That's so it. it's We don't know who it, who's been attacked. Yeah, an unusually high pitched scream, yeah. and then Skinsale says, "What the dickens was that?" <laughs> Terence Dix on the audio commentary on the DV says that was not supposed to be the cliffhanger moment, and uh, director Patty Russell changed it around, I guess, in post production. So he spends a good chunk of time on the commentary track criticizing that cliffhanger because it ends on Skinsale and Adelaide rather than on the main characters. But you're right; it is a nice eerie. Instead of ending on Ruben being electrocuted and bathed in a blue glow, it ends off camera and people yeah. reacting to the scream rather than him actually. Yeah, and, yeah it takes you by surprise. Yeah. If you guys want to hear a wild uh, story about the way that I first came to horror of Fang Rock in 1985, this is when here in the States, PBS was showing Doctor Who at 7 p.m., one episode a night. 
So I started watching in November 1984 with part one of Time Flight, and yet I'm still here, surprisingly. <laughs> and then after they got to the end of the Peter Davison era in February 1985, they looped right back around with Robot uh, Part One. Unfortunately, whoever was playing the tape at my Long Island, New York PBS station did Horror of Fang Rock Part One one night, Part Two the next night, and then Part Four. <laughs> now, of course, I wasn't. I, I had come in a few minutes late because we were still having dinner upstairs. So I come downstairs for what I think is the middle of part three, and we're already deep, deep into part four. I didn't realize. So part four ends, and uh, Leela's eyes change color, and the doctor recites poetry, and the TARDIS leaves. And I fully expected that we're going the next night into the invisible enemy. Instead, I come back, and we're in the crew room in the middle of episode three. And the doctor is debating with Palmerdale and Skates. I'm like, wait a minute. These characters died <laughs> last night. Is the point of the story that they went back earlier in time and tried to save the characters? Am I watching the, like, the art style go back in time and revisit the story to try and change the outcome? And I was convinced for a good five minutes that there was this time travel twist to horror of Fang Rock, all because <laughs> my PBS station showed them out of order. So then it ends with the episode three cliffhanger. But wait a minute, this is – and then, of course, the next night is the invisible enemy. So it took me a long time to realize that I watched Heart of Fang Rock 1, 2, 4, 3 rather than 1, 2, 3, 4. And it is impossible to do that these days because of the way the packages are produced. That You're not going to have somebody on PBS playing the wrong tape on the, on the wrong night. So I probably have a – well, me and everyone else watching that week, I have a unique Heart of Fang Rock experience because I completely misunderstood the point of the story. <laughs> Maybe the story. I think this story might be haunted because it's been. There's, there's other things that are like that around, it, isn't it? The the, um, uh, the the Max Headroom incident. Do you know about that? Um, that's gone down in, in, in folklore now. That um, there was, and, and this was amazing to me because it made the BBC News in 1987 at a time when Doctor Who was something the BBC barely acknowledged still existed, even when it was showing it at the time. But um, there was a, it, it made the news here that a, a broadcast in America got hijacked by somebody in a Max Headroom mask who was believed to be a disgruntled employee of the TV station in question, but they never actually tracked down the culprit. But um, for, um, for several minutes, in the middle of Horror of Fang Rock, uh, it cut to somebody wearing a Max Headroom mask performing various um, suggestive poses and gestures and, and things. Uh, and uh, and that's that was taught when I went, when I went to university and, and was, was doing media production. Uh, that, that got raised there as well. As, uh, it became part of the curriculum here. That, that this is what can happen when, when a broadcast terrorist manages to take control of a substation relay or, or what the, whatever the precise terminology was. Uh, and, and it was so strange having a BBC newsreader um, announcing that, and, and, and it was it was you know, it was the funny story at the end of the news. And a broadcast of Doctor Who was was uh, was hijacked in America, and it showed you the scene. And it's where it's the scene where I think Leela's just got her jumper, her jumper which fits remarkably well. It must have shrunk in the wash. I was seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they on that um, on that on that lighthouse. Forgot to not put it in a boil wash because it, it's a very snug fit around her um, around her um, fine figure. And uh, <laughs> so in the middle of this, this Max Hedron comes on and I was thinking what, what proportion of viewers thought wow this is the crossover episode I've been waiting for you know? <laughs> so there's actually a whole Wikipedia page for that incident which may be the only Wikipedia page devoted to hijacking an episode of PBS <laughs> with pirate video so that was uh, Chicago in 1987 I think it was WTTW which was 
the Chicago PBS station that aired the Five Doctors before Five Doctors aired in the UK. Now that would have that would have been like the flagship station for Doctor Who in America because Chicago was the center of Doctor Who fandom in America. And right. naturally, each PBS station is independently operated. So I'm watching out of a series of PBS stations in the Northeast. I had. Uh, channel 38 in Boston, I had Channel 50 in New Jersey, I had Channel 21 in New York, and then Channel 31 in New York City, which was a, I think that even, I think it's defunct now, but that's four stations in the area that all show Doctor Who independently out of sequence. You can watch four different episodes in a week if you time your schedules right. So I didn't have access to the Chicago WTTW feed, but when I got to Records Doctor Who and used that in the early 90s, the not insignificant portion of bandwidth is, hey, do you guys remember when Max Hedrum took over the horror of Fang Rock in Chicago? <laughs> it's a great it's a great story. Uh, getting back to Leela's wardrobe, uh, I was going to say earlier, so this was another one of those stories where she's supposed to be taken back to the 19th century uh, to the opera, and she's wearing a sort of Talons of Wang Chiang outfit, and it's the doctor who's supposed to be civilizing her, the whole Eliza Doolittle thing. And obviously wearing these big floofy skirts around Fang Rock is not going to work story-wise. So Leela confronts Vincent and demands better fitting clothes. She, she ends up wearing his clothes. And granted, he was not a very uh, large man, but you're right. The, the sweater does fit her a lot better than it fits him. <laughs> yeah. And of course, she changes in front of him and he's scandalized and he turns away. <laughs> Which I venture to say is not the reaction that a lot of Doctor Who fans would have had if Louise Jameson were trying to uh, change in front of them in 1977. But it's a, it's a great series of character moments, both for Leela and for Vince, the way, the way they play that scene with the changing of the clothes on camera. Yeah, in the novelization, I think he makes uh, Terrence Sticks makes a point of saying how slight Vince is and young. Does it, yeah. <laughs> um, so that uh, I think um, uh, Leela sort of sizes him up and says, well, we're about the same size, so I'll, I'll take some of your clothes. So... It's like Terrence Sticks even spotted that slight inconsistency that there would be Leela-sized clothes in the in the lighthouse somewhere. Uh, but I think the other brilliant Leela moment is when she celebrates the Rutan's death at the end um, in a way that no other companion, maybe Jamie, I suppose, would, would kind of gloat over a dying alien that she just shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. that's really just, a, a, I think, a brilliant character note for her. And then the doctor saying, like, it's... You know, we don't do that, you know. I, I think there's a bit of sincere Tom Baker coming through in that moment, isn't there? He's like, yeah. I, I do not want this in my show. Yes. <laughs> Dealing with my light. <laughs> I am the one who hijacks the scene, not you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be stealing the scenes. Thank you very much. Uh, but Vince as well, I think he's, he's so, um, he's just kind of so easily convinced by all the different characters at different times. You get... Ruben at the start trying to convince him that electricity is no good and that you know he'd have been better off in the good old days of, of the oil lamps and then the doctor uh, trying to tell him that there's no supernatural forces at work and, and that Ben wasn't killed by any kind of monster and using his sort of uh, superstitious mistrust of electricity he just said oh, it's funny stuff electricity and he's like oh yeah it is yeah that, that must be right and then uh, when uh, Palmerdale tries to uh, bribe him to send a telegram and he says, well, I'm a businessman. How could there be anything wrong? And uh, he's just kind of constantly trying to sort of blind him by, um, by assuring about things that he doesn't fully understand. Uh, it's just great moments for him like that. And then when he burns the money, 
after Palmerdale dies. Yeah. Um, That's a real character point, isn't it? Yeah. He's great. It's like it's I don't want to be associated with his death in any way, or I just like it's it's kind of tainted, it's you know, it's kind of bad luck now or something. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a really nice little moment to include, isn't it? In the novelization, yeah. that's actually a, a minor plot point because Vince realizes, wait a minute, I have 50 pounds from this very rich man, and now this very rich man is lying dead at the rocks at the bottom of the lighthouse. The implication is that I must have killed him for his money. This mm. makes me an accomplice to the crime, and I must burn the money so that nobody can trace his death to me. So in the book, he's doing it out of uh, fear of criminal liability and not just out of conscience. And that makes sense because he, he doesn't really know about the monster at that point. He's been reassured that there is no beast, hasn't he? And then he's pretty much been in the lamp room from that point onwards, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, and the, and the doctor just lies to them for no particular reason <laughs> other than he can't be bothered to explain, I think. And that's several, really, how many people die as a direct result of the doctor's choices in this story? Yeah. Uh, it's just what makes it a, a scary story. Um, it would be rubbish if everyone was fine. Um, but um, yeah, the, the doctor just lies continually to people. Just be, and, and if none of the, if it was a Pertwee story, there'd be some explanation. There'd be some. I'm not going to tell you just yet because I'm not quite sure. But in this, he's just like, nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> On the audio commentary, Terence Dix says that the hero isn't saving many lives. So it's a story <laughs> where, the, where the doctor's approach just doesn't work. Like when he when he has he has Harker lock the lighthouse door or both the lighthouse doors shut to keep the monster out. He doesn't realize that the monster has taken over Ruben's form, which of course leads to that cliffhanger. I thought I locked the enemy out. I said I've locked it in here with us. So, yeah, I think a lot of the deaths could be attributable to the doctor. But if the Rutan is able to climb up the outside of the lighthouse and take Palmerdale from behind, the doctor wasn't going to be saving a lot of lives anyway. Hmm. No, no. That's true. But although when, when the doctor throws the, uh, the doctor finds the right diamond and then just chucks the others <laughs> on the floor, <laughs> so, that, so that where, where pretty much any human being would stop to pick those up and get and then get killed in the process. But, if he um, had just given the rest of the bag back to the colonel, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in, the, in, in the in, in the book, Terence expl- he says there was enough money on there on the floor for him to live in comfort for the rest of his life. Already established, he has financial troubles being a member of parliament. Uh, so, the book is very sympathetic uh, to why he's, he dies on the floor scrabbling for diamonds. In on TV, he comes up the stairs, and Leela goes, "Where's the colonel?" And the doctor says, "Dead with honor." But in the novelization, that's actually a much longer beat. The doctor says, "Dead," and Leela goes, "With honor." And the doctor says, dying on the floor, scrambling for diamonds is no way for a man to be remembered. So the doctor makes the conscious decision to lie in response to Leela's prompt. And for TV, they condense that to Tom Baker going dead with honor. Mm. But the novelization expands the moment. And I, I just have a lot of sympathy for, uh, for the colonel there. Number one, he's the best written character of the bunch. He's the only one that has two dimensions. <laughs> Secondly, Alan Rowe plays him. Alan Rowe was on the show a bunch of times. This is probably his best guest role. And number three, who among us would, would not do that? Yeah. But the, yeah. the, the doctor yeah. has human nature. He, he, he must have known that if he throws the diamonds on the floor, he's going to pick them back up. But the diamonds aren't going anywhere, are they? There's only the three of them left on the lighthouse. Um, I think if he thought about it, we're going to try and kill the Rutan. The diamonds will still be there when you come back down the stairs. 
That's know, true. Yeah, it, Diamonds it, last forever, apparently. Um, yeah. But he seems to have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> if only Shirley Bassey had been there to explain that to him. <laughs> and it's a weakness of the character that, you know, in the moment is is sort of like his, his greed for them just overtakes him and he goes to pick them up. But, um, you know, whereas, uh, you know, the, he could have safely retrieved them later, I suppose. There's a very interesting thing about Alan Rowe that I, I want to talk about for a minute because Alan Rowe was on Doctor Who several times and he always played a more mild-mannered or weaker, emotionally compromised characters. Alan Rowe was never on as the barrel-chested hero. Alan Rowe was never going to come in and steal a scene. He's very good as the colonel here, but then, of course, his next story is Full Circle, where he plays a, a weak, lily-livered decider. Alan Rowe's lifetime partner was Jeffrey Bailden, who plays Organon and Creature from the Pit. You can imagine the conversations that these two have at the end of the day. I was on Doctor Who, and I played my part as, as a mild-mannered civil servant, that I was very nuanced. And Jeffrey goes, oh, that's funny. I've just been cast on Doctor Who for a story called The Creature from the Pit. How should I play it? You should play it like me, mild-mannered and me. And Jeffrey's like, nah, I've got a better idea. Well, let's try it my way. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey Belden is the, the best replacement first doctor we never had it, it was it, it was uh, it, he's, he's so fantastic in, in Wurzel Gummidge and Cat Weasel and he would have been a great stand-in for William Hartnell if it ever needed if, if it had ever aligned rightly but I, I think of it somewhere that Jonathan Turner didn't cast him in Five Doctors because he was too um, too well known at the time for, for his other 70s kids shows and too instantly recognisable where uh, um, or that might have just been speculation as to why he wasn't picked mm. but yeah he was memorizing creature from a creature from the pit. I loved as a twelve-year-old watching him overact. Yeah. Yes, and the, yes. Fact, just... and, the fact, and the fact that he's basically married to a man who made a career on Doctor Who of not overacting is yeah. kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> Opposite, opposites attract. Always okay. Yeah. <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> he just seemed the most likely to survive uh, towards the end of the story, though, because he's. he's the Doctor's not that nice to many of the other characters. He, he's uh, he's kind of okay with Harker, isn't he? And and Vince, and then um, and then Skinsale. Um, and it seems he's the last man standing. Uh, he's he's brave. He's, he says to the Doctor, "I'll, I'll come with you, and we'll get the diamonds." And he gets those at the end. It does. Uh, it does seem like he's going to make it. But then, yeah, just uh, just that last minute of uh, of, of greed overtakes him. Uh, do you think yeah, this is the first story where everyone dies? I think everyone. Dies. I think, yeah, it's a definite. The massacre comes. The massacre comes close, but but there's some some ambiguous, isn't there? Oh, actually, no, of course not. No, the 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 the, uh, the villains survive I mean, the massacre. The, yeah, of course they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking of the uh, of the, the the people we meet um, at uh, at the doctor's level. But yeah, yeah. No, you're right. This is the first complete. Everyone dies, isn't it? Because going through the series in order, everyone survives the savages, everyone survives Fury from the Deep. So twice in the first five seasons, everybody lives. But at least as far as the wheel in space, I have not yet hit a story where everybody dies. So this, this very well may be the first. Mm. This is also, chronologically speaking, this is the first Tom Baker story where the Doctor is not knocked unconscious during the story. Every single story in his first three seasons, he is knocked unconscious. This is the first story where he stays awake the whole time. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a great statistic. 
<laughs> and so at no point does the companion have to think that the doctor is dead and get upset about it and then be relieved that he isn't because that's the other <laughs> that's the flip side of that isn't it Sarah spent, a lot of, Sarah spent a lot of time doing that didn't she yeah. uh, you're, you're soaking my shirt crying <laughs> over this corpse the reason that everyone has to die in this story is it's because it's based on a true story the disappearance of the Flannan Isle lighthouse keepers in the year 1900 so you can't have a happy ending because it's based on a story that doesn't have a happy. This is you can't do Quentin Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and turn it into a happy fairy tale where they change history. Everyone mm-hmm. has to die. So who is? I'll ask you guys. Who is the character that you felt the most sorry for? And then I'll come back and give my answer when you guys are done. For me, definitely Vince. Yeah, he's yeah, well, uh, he's the easily yeah. the most likable character, and probably one of the most likable kind of guest characters ever in Doctor Who. Really, um, I think reading about it in the complete history, the the guy is in his thirties, but quite convincingly plays much younger than that. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's 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 just so kind of gullible and and uh, anxious to please and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, I think the I think I'm right in saying the scene before. Reuben apparently kills, or who he thinks Reuben kills him, is when Reuben's showing him a bit of kindness by saying, oh, look, you're shivering too much. I'll go and stoke the boiler. It's okay. Um, So he's just kind of had that bit of warmth from Reuben. Um, And then the next scene, yeah, zaps him on the head and uh, and kills him. Uh, So, yeah, I think think for me that's – he's easily the most sympathetic. Yeah, I can only – I I can only reiterate that myself too, yeah. Um, What about you? I actually was heading in the same direction, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that we're all on the same page. Yeah. I mean, John Abbott plays the role so kind, and there's not a, there's not a hint of malice to the character. In in the Scottish movie The Vanishing, which is <clears throat> a different take on how the three men disappear in a non-sci-fi setting, the guy who plays the young, innocent lighthouse keeper is not quite so naive and kind and gentle as Vince. It's a very different take. Uh, but Vince is the one character that you argue should be able to survive the thing and be the last man standing because he has no character flaws. Mm. And he stays alive through all of part three, and he sort of dies by accident at the beginning of part four without having any real – his first scene in part four, and he's killed off, which is an odd mm. bit of staging. You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect that. Normally in the old days, part four is done live to tape. And there's no reason to kill off a character in the first scene and have them sit on the sidelines for the rest of the recording. So it's not a moment when a character should be dying in the first 90 seconds of an episode. And then poor John Abbott must have been that nice in real life because if you listen to the audio commentary on the DVD, you've got Terrence Dix, who's very outsized, very outspoken. Louise Jameson, who's very outspoken. Yeah. And then you have poor John Abbott sitting in the corner of the recording booth going, oh, that was very nice, yes, very nice, okay. <laughs> Followed by five minutes of silence because Terrence and Louise won't let him get into work twice. <laughs> so he's, yeah, he's, he's the one character that I felt the most sorry for in the whole piece, apart from the colonel, I guess. He's companion material, really, isn't he, in, in, another, in another time. It would, would have been absolutely fine to have him flying off with them. But, I um, think Adelaide would have been a much better companion. Can you imagine Adelaide <laughs> in every story screaming and fainting in that lovely pink dress? Could you learn to do it in the same pitch as the Doctor Who theme starting? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine Adelaide in Underworld running around that uh, planet in her big pink satin dress? 
<laughs> Can you imagine her in the invasion of time, getting the Adlers together and forming an invasion band of the capital? <laughs> Can you imagine Adelaide and the invisible enemy shrunk down to the size of a Microsoft particle and injected into the back of Tom Baker's neck and walking around Tom Baker's brain in her satin dress? Come on. The possibilities are endless. Free Adelaide. A, a Fury from the Deep sequel would be great with Adelaide. <laughs> it, would, it would be short because she'd destroy it quite quickly with all that screaming. <laughs> Scream, Adelaide, scream. Oh, we have five minute episodes to go. <laughs> while, listening, while listening to this, it did cross my mind. Imagine if, because obviously this had a trouble, uh, uh, this was a, a, a uh, oh, it's obvious, but, but but this was a last minute commission, wasn't it? So to replace the vampire story that they were, that got vetoed by the BBC because they were doing a proper vampire drama and didn't want a silly Doctor Who one going out at the same time. So we had to wait till State of Decay for that. But this was, um, uh, the, the, I just thought, what has this running order got juggled about? And this ended up coming at the end of season 15 and had to have canine in it. And Leela <laughs> spends the entire story just carrying canine up and down flights of stairs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I think a canine story in a, in a, oops, sorry, I dropped my microphone, such as my excitement about that. But yeah, a canine story in a lighthouse would be a real challenge that I, yeah, I still really want to hear, maybe on audio. <laughs> that was the epiphany that I had about this story last week, and I put it on Twitter, and Mark shared it. It was the most popular thing I've written on Twitter in, in, in ages. <laughs> this is a vampire story. Somebody tells Terence Dix, you can't write Dracula because the BBC is doing a prestige version of Dracula. You can't write that story. We're going to put it on the shelf. Write something else. So he writes Dracula anyway, and he calls it the horror of Fang Rock, because <laughs> vampires have fangs. And one of the characters is named Harker, who is the main character in the first half of Dracula. And it's the characters being picked off and stalked one by one. He basically writes Dracula in a lighthouse, and he says, Fang Rock, Harker, I'm giving you Dracula, and nobody <laughs> noticed that's why Terrence Dix is an assassin. That is why he is my favorite person ever. Because the chutzpah to do that, all right, I'm just going to write Dracula, and you're not going to notice because I'm going to put it in code. But it's all there. <laughs> it's a bit like um, the, uh, the Curse of Fenric, isn't it? When they uh, when John Nathan Turner says, we can't have vampires. So they just went through the script and replaced every reference to vampire with Hemovore. <laughs> and uh, didn't change anything. Yeah, it didn't change anything else. <laughs> Which is ironic, because vampires are out of copyright. You would think that would be one thing that Doctor Who didn't have to worry about doing. But, um, but for other reasons, uh, it's something that, yeah, they just mm -hmm. want to stay clear of. <laughs> in fact, and it was because that vampire story was getting taken up all the studio space in London that uh, that's why we ended up in Birmingham uh, for, for this one. And, that, and that's, probably, that's why... You know, I'm sure you know that the the, the, uh, the, the the it's been said that the, the Birmingham crew really went out, really pushed the boat out to do everything they possibly could to show off that they could do drama at their studios. Yeah. Whereas the the BBC uh, down down in London, Doctor Who was much more of a oh, we'll squeeze it in kind of uh, kind of affair that didn't really get anybody outside of it excited. But um, yeah, up here they uh, they re they really pushed the boat out. And, and I mean, talk about talk about. Mm -hmm. oh, by the way, yeah, we're filming Doctor Who. It's it's not um, it's a science fiction show. Uh, we just need to c come to your studio where you don't normally do drama. And oh, by the way, it's set in a lighthouse, and we need three cameras going up and down the, the curved staircase. That's not going to be a problem, is it? And and it's amazing that they uh, that it just looks as good as it does. Yeah. And that's it because there's only sort of four sets or something, isn't there? And um, and, and then the. I suppose the, the rocky exterior, but that, that seems to be on film. Um, and I think something it talks about in The Complete History is something that Paddy Russell was conscious of, that a lot of the scenes were set in the lamp room and she, she spread them out a bit more so that they were moving between the rooms 
much more often, so it didn't didn't become uh, a bit kind of stale and static because um, they they're running up and down those stairs a lot, aren't they? <laughs> From one yeah. room to another, um, especially the Doctor and Leela. I don't think Adelaide ever makes it out the crew room, does she? Um, maybe maybe address them and set up the narrowest bit. Of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She has the worst death as well, doesn't she? she you don't even see yeah. how Ruben um, captures her. She just seems to have just just cut to her being zapped. Yeah. And everyone's just, nobody really minds no. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> uh, no, what, what you said before about her, like, uh, you know, kind of being fairly sympathetic. To, to her you know being pushed into that situation uh, yeah what you were saying about that the, the character being pushed out of the comfort zone uh, completely is like Mickey in the first series of, uh, of the of the reboot of Doctor Who and he's kind of really looked down upon for not just instantly being able to handle you know being cloned and facing autons and, uh, and all that sort of stuff um, so yeah I've always um, I've always felt really really bad for, for Mickey and that and I suppose I should extend that to Adelaide in, in this uh, in this story as well. Yeah, we do need someone to have someone around who reminds us that that is actually how most people would react, and that our, our super sidekick, excellent, awesome companions are supposed to be actually exceptional people, not examples of typical people. Yeah. So uh, yeah, because I suppose like the way that the Doctor think that Ruben's gone into shock, uh, which would not be a unreasonable reaction um, in real life to the events. Um, but it's not something that really happens, is it, in <laughs> in, uh, in Doctor Who stories? But it's it, you know it's it, it, it's believable um, that uh, that, it, that the reason he has gone and locked himself in his room is because he's uh, he's become catatonic. Yeah. How good is Colin Douglas in a dual role? I mean, in, in, for in me, in real time, for me. I just got finished with Enemy of the World, where he plays a serious, tough-as-nails, no-nonsense cop who is also compulsively honest and goes from being antagonist to being a hero at the end of the episode for Cliffhanger. And I just got – they haven't released it in the States, but fortunately I can watch Region 2 DVDs here uh, on this laptop. So – the production notes on the Enemy of the World special edition DVD tell us that Colin Douglas hated Doctor Who, <laughs> hated making Enemy of the World, never wanted to come back to the show. But he's so good in Enemy of the World playing this one-note serious cop that you just accept him instantly as the story's well, – one of the story's centers of gravity. Mm-hmm. So somehow or other, somebody must have persuaded him 10 years later to come back. And now he gets to play a dual role. So in parts one and two, he's playing the crusty old lighthouse keeper who is suspicious of, of electricity. And the doctor has this great light. I know his type. At the beginning of oil, he would have said, what you really need is a really large candle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then he's possessed, he's killed and he's possessed and he's playing the Rutan in episodes three and four. And the creepy smile that he gives as he's about to kill Vince is – incredibly disturbing it is nothing that colin douglas has ever done in his first one and a half stories on on doctor who so he's the only one in the episode who gets to play a dual role and i just love the way that he plays it yeah and then he voices the rutan in its uh natural form as well doesn't he on the stairs um so he's uh he's doing sort of two two vocal performances as well as two physical performances uh kind of separately as well yeah yeah, he's very good. You wouldn't have that nowadays. You would have uh, Nicholas Briggs come in to do the monster voice. You, you wouldn't have the same <laughs> yeah, guy yeah. Playing, <laughs> playing the dual role. 
<laughs> not nearly as many doppelgangers in, in, in a new series Doctor Who as in the classic series. No, yeah, there's quite a shortage of that, or, or general hypnotizings as well. Mm. They're on the uh, they need to they need to uh, need to up, up the numbers of those. <laughs> yeah, possessions and evil doubles and that type of thing. Of uh... yeah, is it Martha? Is she the last one? Oh, we had um, we had uh, the Zygon that took uh, Clara's form as well, didn't we? I suppose that's the uh, probably the most recent example. Yeah, so it happens once in a while. Yeah. But I think I, I, I get the impression that's on Chibnall's list of things to not do. Um, mm. because, because it seems to have been studiously avoided in, uh, in, in these first two years. Um, yeah. I can imagine Chip Knoll's two not do list is pretty formidable. Do not <laughs> tell a good story. Do not. Oh, do <laughs> Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> but, um, I, right, one thing I've got written down that I forgot to mention when we were talking about Leela earlier is one of my favourite Leela moments of all is, um, and it's just a little line, but she turns to the doctor at one point and goes, do not be afraid. Yeah. And, and she does not know that she's the, that she's the doctor's companion and it's her job to be afraid. <laughs> uh, she, she has not had, Leela has not had that memo and, and the doctor's really, Tom plays it really well as just being sort of, you know, shocked by it, but but um, it just it comes a complete curveball to it. She's just got so many so many minutes she could get, and the bit where she she struggles the way that she works really hard to um, understand all the jargon that's completely new to her, and then there's, there's the bit where she says to uh, someone she has to pass on the message, and she says keep the boy pressure up, and and uh, and he says do you mean boiler pressure? And she goes that is what I said. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the bit at the end when she thinks she's gone blind, and she immediately says to take hands a knife to the doctor and says slay me um, yeah. that's, that's mm. brutal isn't it which had a different meaning in those days it does not mean say something amazing and yeah. impressive <laughs> like it does now it actually used to mean killing people uh, so that's for any younger listeners <laughs> I suppose what you were saying before as well about um, you know that when the uh, the companions think that the doctors died uh, if Leela thought that the doctor had been incapacitated or was, uh, was lame in any way she would just put him out of his misery <laughs> put him out of his misery she wouldn't be crying and, and making his shirt wet like Sarah Jane. She'd just go, well, better end his suffering. Yeah, better burn the corpse. <laughs> so instead of bringing him to the Bayal Foundation and the Invisible Enemy, she could have just killed him off in the TARDIS in part one. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a drastic solution to the problem of the Invisible just, Enemy. Yeah. <laughs> just triggered a regeneration right there. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Davison wakes up with uh, Leela's knife sticking out of his chest. <laughs> what did you do that for? We've only got, got a year with um, with, with uh, Davison and Leela, and that's on the interview at the end of the uh, of the version on Audible with Louise Jameson, where she's talking. I think it's the first time she's done one of these uh, soundtrack narrated soundtracks because she talks about how tricky it was having to get the text into the little bit of silence between the lines, not using its natural rhythm, but, and, and that makes it really uh really pacey when she's doing it but in that she says that yeah the one that she doesn't regret leaving because her, her career went in exactly where she wanted it to but um but when jnt asked her to come back for a year when the tom was leaving and she said she'd come back for a couple of stories but didn't want to do a whole year and uh, and jnt said then that's why we got missa i think instead mm -hmm. coming coming back um and uh, but she did say she, she rather regretted that but then that, that ended up being the year that she did tango so um she wouldn't have taken that away uh, but um yeah that would be an that's a combination i find really hard to imagine leela and davison but yeah. i'm sure it would have been amazing 
I'm trying to figure out how Leela is going to work in the middle of Legopolis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess she just gets brought from Gallifrey by by the Watcher. So <laughs> what is a, well, in this very technical story where basically the entire script is a computer program, how does Leela fit into this? Oh, you mean what does she do? Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, exactly. Now. I mean, so how does how does the character behave in a setting where the entire script is a computer program and the universe is going to end and they're climbing on the catwalks of uh, the Jodrell Bank uh, satellite dish, yeah. whatever it was supposed to be? Maybe she could use a knife as a screwdriver to un- unbolt some computer panels or something for Adric to get at. <laughs> it isn't as if Nissa has much to do in the story anyway, but. Louise Jameson's energy in that story is going to be a really interesting twist. Yeah. Because yeah. he'd also asked Elizabeth Sladen as well, hadn't he? I don't know, either before or after Louise Jameson um, uh, about coming back to, to ease the transition. Yeah, and that just shows the impact that these characters had that mm-hmm. JNT, Mr. Mr. I want a completely fresh start to Doctor Who, was still not at all averse to bringing back people of that calibre. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, those kind of what ifs are. are Roads not taken are quite fascinating with Doctor, aren't they? Mm. I, I knew I knew that he had invited Elizabeth Sladen back. I think I did not know that he invited Louise Jameson back as well. So now I'm really I really feel cheated that we didn't <laughs> yeah. we didn't get Leela in some of those uh, Christopher H. Bidmead scripts trying to master the technical dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Although at that point, living on Gallifrey for three years, maybe she had become a computer genius. And we didn't know it. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, um, have either of you come across or read the, um, the the prequel stroke sequel to this that's come out under Candy Jar Books um, uh, on, in their Lethbridge Stewart range? The, I think it was the third one, it's called um, The Beast of Fan, Fang Rock. Yeah, I've read uh, that one, yeah. Yeah, and the, the audiobook of that series. There's a Terry Mollo, they were doing audiobooks for the first few, uh, and there's a Terry Mollo reading of it. Um, it's really good, it, it, but it's quite it's quite complicated because they have an extremely complicated timeline thing going on through those books with um, Colonel Lethbridge Stewart and mm-hmm. Anne Travers, and in the story they both they're investigating in the six in, in the late sixties they're investigating a mysterious goings on at the lighthouse, which is now famous as Britain's most haunt, most haunted lighthouse, and it turns out that Anne's grandfather or great grandfather was there in the eighteen twenties. Um, when the, 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 the as mentioned in Horror Fang Rock that there was a, there were killings then mm. and uh, by a beast and and it transpires that the, the Rutan got spliced in two by some kind of time wave and, and at the same time it landed in um, in, in the Edwardian era for Horror Fang Rock it also landed in the 1820s um, and was was wreaking equal havoc uh, back then and that's where that story that story goes City of Death style you have twelve slices of the Rutan throughout. Yeah. Uh, time trying to reunite itself this reminds me I don't know if his last name is ever mentioned on screen because he's only in the first half of one episode but uh, Ralph Watson who plays Ben in the novelization Ben's last name is Travers oh that is interesting right. I don't know if that's followed over into the thing the Lethbridge Stewart book is, is definitely it's done with in fact I think it even says from an idea by Terence Dix Terence Dix is credited for, with, for involvement not, not mm. just permission so uh yeah, I don't know if they had weaved all that in deliberately. That, I think, from what I remember, it does. Um, yeah, it does. It does tie into it being Ben Travers in uh, in that story because um, they come very close to. Um, I think the Doctor even appears in it, but unnamed or something, doesn't it? It's. Um, it feels when you're reading it like they're sailing very close to the 
breaching copyright wins. Um, <laughs> I think at one point yeah. they, they see the TARDIS and the Doctor, but it's not, not quite named or something. Right, yeah, you can get away with that, can't you? You yeah. can infer or, or, or encourage the readers to infer that the Doctor's there as long as you don't start using those words. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to pick that book up the next time I'm at a convention, which hopefully will be soon. Mm. Conventions, I remember those in the old yeah. time. <laughs> Gallifrey One in Los Angeles would have been this weekend, so I should be in Los Angeles recording this right now instead of doing a panel. Uh-huh. <laughs> but of course, the pandemic has put paid to that. So are they, are they carrying everyone's tickets over to the, the following year? Uh, yes, and I believe they're also going to be rebooking the hotel reservations. Next year, the Super Bowl is going to be in Los Angeles. That's the big American football event for you in the, in the UK. Mm. And it's a kind of a big deal over here. And by kind of, I mean a ridiculous big deal. <laughs> so Gallifrey is going to have to move away from its usual weekend, and it'll be in uh, mid-March next year, I believe, assuming everything goes forward as planned. But well, that's what's wild. I did not know that the, you had the whole prequel slash sequel in the uh, in the Colonel yeah. Richards storybooks. That's just fascinating. Yeah, I mean the story certainly leaves a room for the prequel because when you talk about the Beast of Fang Rock and this has happened before, and Ruben tells the story, there's definitely room for that to be a different or the same Rutan eighty years earlier. Mm. That's kind of mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah, I um and and. We're going with our own interpretations of the word, aren't we, uh, verbally? Because <laughs> I noticed in, in, in the story, it's first definitely pronounced as Rutan at first, and then very quickly from episode two on, or well, no, from its second dimension onwards, it becomes Ruton. And uh, then I think it's pretty... But, but then we, if we've, we've never really got Sontaran nailed down. Well, yeah. <laughs> we've got to sort of say Sontaran, except people in the series. <laughs> it's... Uh, why, why should we pin the, uh, an alien species down to mere human syllable pronunciations? Yeah. Like the I know the Gallifrey. great story from the set of uh, The Time Warrior it was supposed to be pronounced Santorin or Santoran. And Kevin Lindsay said, no, I'm the alien. I'm going to pronounce it Santoran. <laughs> and even if the Rutan is Rutan, Tom Baker rhymes it with Ruben. Oh, Ruben the Rutan. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it's like the uh, Tom Baker's the only doctor, I think it says Gallifrey, isn't he, uh, for most of his run. And all the other doctors say Gallifrey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, he talks about the chameleon factor in this, yeah. which is a, a curveball. <laughs> 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 Makes me think of Michael Jackson for some reason. <laughs> that was uh, the reason why I bought the novelization when I was a kid. The same reason that I bought The Brain of Morbius, because I couldn't figure out what is the word labolatry. When Solon says, take the doctor to the laboratory, what is that word? No, it's laboratory. Bought, laboratory, yeah. I bought the Sunmakers because I didn't know what aluminium was. Uh, I don't know, ma- ma- mahogany. The desk was made of mahogany. What, what is mahogany? I didn't realize that. Uh, that was done on purpose. And then, of course, I didn't know what a chameleon was. Oh, it was just chameleon. Okay. <laughs> it's an education uh, watching Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, you learn things you never expected to learn. And speaking of which, there is an amazing um, uh, 
black archive book into this story, which I've, which I've devoured over the past couple of days. And I know no more about Virginia Woolf to the lighthouse and its significance and, and things and lighthouses themselves than I ever expected to. Uh, it's, it's really Rethian <laughs> that way. You, um, and, and it's full of... Um, sort of the origins of spooky stories about lighthouses as well. And, and the reason that there are three lighthouse keepers instead of just two is because there was a time in the early 1800s when um, when there were only two lighthouse keepers and a lighthouse and they hated each other and everyone knew they hated <laughs> each other and then one of them died. But it was natural causes. But the other one was so convinced everyone would think he was a murderer that he went a bit mad and tied the body of his dead colleague to the outside of the lighthouse so that uh, as it decomposed it would still it, it, it would still exist in the in the hope that people would be able to then do a uh, do a proper examination oh. of it and, and prove that he hadn't murdered him um and that's, sorry, this is a true one this isn't the ghost story this is, this is the sort of thing that has inspired the ghost stories um but yeah they're such weird buildings because they're a building with such a specific function that means they break the rules of, of normal buildings and uh yeah if you want to go down that rabbit hole then uh, yeah. enjoy it in, in the black archive yeah and so who wrote that black archive i need to pick that one up I know I'm stalling because the, the name's escaping me, but um, it's it's a really good one. Yeah, I was going to ask you guys, where does horror of Fang Rock fit in for you in terms of great lighthouse fiction? I'll start you off. As an American kid growing up in the late '70s, my favorite Disney movie was Pete's Dragon, which is set in a lighthouse, and Mickey Rooney plays the alcoholic lighthouse keeper, and Helen Reddy, who just died, plays his daughter, and then the boy is a take it on board, and he wears these large, oversized, cable-knit sweaters meant for Mickey Rooney. And that was a big influence on me at age five or six, uh, and ever since then I've just been fascinated with lighthouses, which may be one of the reasons why Horror of Fang Rock speaks to me so much. And I may have mentioned this during an earlier recording, I can't remember, but in Fugitive of the Jadoon, when... (laughs) uh, Ruth drives the 13th Doctor uh, to the coast, and they wind up in the lighthouse. I obviously didn't know what was coming next. I didn't know the reveal of who Ruth was supposed to be. But at that moment, when they get to the lighthouse, and the Doctor starts digging outside, and there's sort of a green light coming up, I'm like, more than (laughs) anything else in the world, all I wanted at that exact moment was for this to be a stealth sequel to Horror of Fang Rock. And I wanted this to be the same lighthouse. And, of course, the explanation that we got as to who Ruth was ended up being even better. Yeah, but, but Ruth the Rootin would be amazing. <laughs> right, w- w- watching, watching the story, watching the story live, not knowing what was going to happen, all I wanted was for this to be a Horror of Fang Rock uh, sequel. Uh, so the Black Archive was written by somebody named Matthew Guerreri, who I confess I've never heard of before. I'm, I'm going to have to pick that up. Yeah, thank you. The, the name had escaped me. Um, yeah, it's a good one. And yeah, um, the uh, that lighthouse, the, um, the 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 Ruth Doctor's lighthouse, is actually bookable. I don't know if it's an Airbnb or if it's just privately bookable, but it is a, it's a holiday booking. Uh, sadly, unavailable for the past year. Um, yeah. But that's got to be on a lot. It's certainly on my my list of places to go stay sometime. <laughs> Oh, that's so in terms of lighthouse fiction, then where does this fit in for you guys? And then I have another response at the end. You I, well, for me, I think this is this is probably the first lighthouse fiction I really know. Of. You know, as, as a kid, um, the, the Frankles. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> horror of Fraggle Rock. Uh, but uh, yeah, and then horror of Fraggle Rock. I, I yeah, I. Uh, I've not got another. I've not got a second favorite lighthouse thing, or third favorite lighthouse thing, other than the, than these two, and them just really being sort of omnipresent as as symbols of uh, of, of places that are yeah, that are just on on the periphery and, and in life and death situations. And we did a lot of stuff at school about Grace Darling, the the lighthouse keepers. Um, no, she wasn't a light. Was she? She went to rescue. But she was the lighthouse keeper's daughter. Who, when he was, when his boat sank, she got in the boat and went out and rescued everyone in the in the late eighteen hundreds. I think she was a, a very an early um, an early feminist hero uh, that we were taught about at primary school. So that she's the first, but, but she's a historical person. But she's the first person who springs to mind when I start thinking about lighthouses beyond this one. Yeah, I can, I've only got vague recollections of, of Fraggle Rock um, from when I was a kid. Um, so I think this is this is top of my lighthouse fiction, and I, I don't know if you would count Jonathan Creek as lighthouse fiction. He was, um, and it probably didn't make it over there, Jason. But this, he was a, a kind of an offbeat detective. He was a guy who designed magic tricks for a famous stage music, uh, magician, and because he had this kind of mind that um, could come up with very convoluted tricky things that would trick most people uh, he had the knack of, of solving very difficult murders uh, kind of locked room mysteries and things like that but he lived in a in a lighthouse so if that counts then that's uh, that's probably my second favorite but I i've heard seen... the name of that series but i can't confess that i've ever seen it unfortunately mark i'm gonna have to split hairs with you here it was a windmill not a lighthouse <laughs> <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> pretty big distinction to make there chief the, uh, the windmill <laughs> the memory well, structurally, I mean, there's a similar shape, but the whole spinning spinning thing yeah. is, is where. Yeah. So I, I would That's... not put you in charge of coastal uh, <laughs> alert systems for, uh, for passing sea ships because uh, there would just be some paddles silently and darkly spinning in the night, which is actually all that useful when you're trying to avoid crashing the ship. Yeah, okay. The, the memory the cheats there. Right. Of Don Quixote was Don Quixote talking at lighthouses. <laughs> <laughs> That's the third favorite. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I haven't revisited Jonathan Creek, and I've completely misremembered his abode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've got the gist, round roofs, <laughs> round walls and, and spiral staircases. You know? there's, a, there's a tower-like structure there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just a, a broader genus than... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I recant that answer and, uh, and say this is, um, this is like Fang Rock. It's, it's standalone in my, uh, my appreciation of the lighthouse genre then. <laughs> so... For my purpose, about three months ago, I discovered the Japanese novel and then the movie Battle Royale, which was completely ripped off as the Hunger Games here in the States. Hunger Games is basically a beat-for-beat retelling of Battle Royale without giving credit to the original. So in in Battle Royale, it's an entire class of Japanese ninth-grade junior high school students, 42 of them, kidnapped by the government and put on an island that has been rigged, and they have to fight to the death, and only one person can survive. So it's the Hunger Games, only much, much, much better. But there's a whole sequence towards the uh, middle end of the book and the movie where a bunch of the girls who don't want to fight retreat to the island's lighthouse. And they take refuge in the lighthouse. And then one of the boys is badly injured and they take him in. And it just leads to this remarkable, probably the best 10-minute sequence of 
any movie that I've ever seen. The 10-minute lighthouse sequence in the second half of Battle Royale, the movie, takes up about five or six chapters in the book as well. And then there was a spin-off manga telling the same story from a different angle. Uh, probably replaces Har of Fang Rock as my best bit of lighthouse fiction. It's just remar- it's just the way that the sequence goes from joy to horror in a short span and the way things fall apart at the bottom of the lighthouse just I literally had to stop the movie and finish watching the next night is how good that sequence was. Uh, I just literally could not process anymore. I just needed time to work through that. And as much as I love horror of Fang Rock, it isn't a story that you turn off and need need to breathe it from at the end because the doctor walks off and he's reciting poetry. And even though everyone dies, the doctor and Leela are happy. She has a new eye color. The doctor's reciting Wilfred Gibson. So uh, Battle Royale is much more more hard-hitting, I should say. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I think I'm going to have to look that up. It is also streaming free on Amazon here in the States, but it's the dubbed version with bad American acting taking over for the Japanese voices. So try and seek out the original version for sure. There is something evocative about them, isn't there? Because by their nature, they're remote. And, and uh, like you say, it's, it's a few people trapped together in a, in a remote location. There's a recent movie, isn't there, with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson? But I, I haven't seen that one. But that's um, it's in black and white. Um, yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, the, the, uh, I've not seen it, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a real uh, tense psychological mm. thing, isn't it? Of them both basically going mad seems to be the gist from the from the trailer. Yeah. And the vanishing, the 2018 Scottish film with Gerard Butler, is the Flannan Isle story on Flannan Isle, and they use the real names of the three keepers. But there, right. of course, rather than a supernatural explanation and the doctor coming in and trampling over people's lines, it's three lighthouse keepers who make a discovery. And the way they react to the discovery drives one of them mad. And obviously we know that the movie has to end with the lighthouse abandoned and deserted with plates on the table because that's what happened in real life. But they put a twist on it so that it doesn't quite end the way that you expect. It's The first half is very deliberate and very moody, and it's gorgeous scenery because it's filmed it's filmed on the, on the aisles. And the last half is incredibly bloody, violent. So it's not as good as Horror of Fang Rock, but it is an interesting psychological horror movie. And what's that one called? The Vanishing. The Vanishing. Should have called it Flan and Isle Has Fallen. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. The, 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 the horror of Flan and Isle. <laughs> <laughs> are you guys familiar with the poem the Wilfred Gibson poem that the doctor recites at the end of the episode no a bit yeah because I remember we did it at school and uh, uh, my uh, I remember uh, primary school this would be or maybe secondary school so like age 12 or something and I remember my English teacher who was a very stern um, Mr. Bronson type for, uh, for <laughs> British listeners of a certain age who was the, the terrifying teacher played by Doctor Who's Michael Sheard Michael Sheard Michael Sheard, yeah, in Grange Hill, and he's, he was uh, he, he was the the archetypal scary teacher, uh, and he and normally he was very completely joyless and, and uh, at school. But when he was reading this flannel poem, he got so into the drama of it. It was, uh, and I was sitting there going, "This is horrifying, Rock. I've got the book of this." But I decided <laughs> not, I, didn't, I didn't say anything. So like, he would not appreciate me lowering his masterpiece with with, with such a comment. <laughs> But is, I don't know if that was unusual that we happened to do it because it just happened to be my teacher's one of my teacher's favorite poems. So I don't know if, if it, how widely known it is. I mean, here in the states, I don't think Wilfred Gibson is known at all. 
and I certainly did not have any experience with it in high school. But when I got to college as an 18-year-old in 1991, being a huge Doctor Who fan, one of the first things that I did in the university library was look up Wilfred Gibson in the card catalog, go down to the basement levels of the darkest, lowest levels of the library, and I found this dusty old first edition of Wilfred Gibson poetry. The book must have been 80 years old. And I found the poem and I photocopied it. Remember when photocopying was a thing? <laughs> I photocopied the poem. I still don't understand how photocopies work. Magic is trickery. <laughs> yeah. So I actually photocopy. I mean, the photocopy is long since lost because this is almost 30 years ago now. But for my fiction writing class that year, I had to keep a journal um, of all my thoughts as they came to me. And of course, being the lazy procrastinator that I am, I didn't keep a journal. I just put it together the last week of class, going back and backdating entries. So I just copied out the famous uh, Tom Baker stanza of that poem because I had the photocopy in front of me. And I put it in my quote-unquote writer's journal. And the teacher gave me a large, big blue check mark when she reviewed my journal at the end of class. So I guess either she was a stealth Doctor Who fan who recognized the poem or she thought it was a really good quote. I'll never know to this day. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing these things. Doctor Who links into everything, doesn't it? <laughs> and this is what this is. This is way up on my list. I, I think we're probably all in a similar situation here of, of, of all-time greats of Doctor Who. It's not typical. Doctor Who couldn't be like this every week. But having a story like this, where the stakes are this intense for the people in question, and I think the deaths of the characters is more exciting or, or more perilous. A more manageable peril than the notion that the room then going to invade the earth. That's a kind of a little bit of a of an extra reel at the end, which is fine. But but mm. um, uh, this is one of my show it to a non-fan to show them how good Doctor Who can be stories any any day. Um, it's just it, it's just it's, it's peerless. Yeah, no, peerless is the wrong word. There's about half a dozen Doctor Who stories that are this <laughs> good, but they are just the exemplary tier. This yeah. has always been in my top ten of classic series stories, and there's not a bad moment in the entire – with a possible exception of Adelaide screaming one too many times. There is not a bad moment. There is not a bad line of dialogue in the entire story. Terrence Dix wrote this at the last minute, and it doesn't show because it's perfect. And then on top of that, you have this made in a cramp studio – long way from London, not even its usual digs. And it's just four or five actors on three sets, no budget. And the dialogue is so good, and the directing and the music of Tom Baker is so good, you never notice that this is basically black box theater. This is not mm-hmm. sophisticated, it's not expensive, it's low budget, but it's, it's, it's wonderful all the same, and the atmosphere is just terrific. Yeah, I agree. I think the performances are amazing, the writing... The uh, you know the, it's that Doctor Who thing of or the BBC thing of the period drama means that the sets and the costumes look fantastic. Watching it this time, I think the Rutan didn't look as bad as I remembered even, and it's not a great effect. Yeah, I think um, it, yeah, but it gets some some people say it's a weakness, but I mean it's it's really unusual. It's just really unusual, and yeah, it is a blob, and it gets teased for being a blob, but that's that's fine. <laughs> and the model work as well. The the shot of Tom Baker hanging from the window ledge on the outside of the lighthouse is it looks really really good. Yeah, I think the I uh, guess maybe the, maybe the toy yacht crashing into the, <laughs> the model rocks at the end of part one is not the best cliffhanger. Maybe that yeah. could have been a little more uh, high budget. Yeah, or if they just turned up the smoke a little bit so that you could just see the outline of a ship crashing, even that would have uh, yeah. that would have <laughs> landed it perfectly. So yeah, but. Um, 
but, but we like having little things like that <laughs> to, to excuse. Wouldn't be a Doctor Who story without at least one bad visual effect, like, like the yeah. Action Man toy tank and, and robot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's, it's, it's yeah top tier for me as well. It's uh, it's great. A conclusion in harmony then. <laughs> yeah. So which which one of us went mad and which two of us died on the recording of this podcast? <laughs> I guess I guess it was the odd lighthouse story with a happy ending. It's yes, so yeah. far, as we know. <laughs> Feast oh, of Trap One did not get us. Yeah. What is um, Portland Bill? Was that on a lighthouse? Um, Portland Bill is the name of a place, isn't it? And there was oh yeah, there was a kids cartoon about a guy called Portland Bill who lived there. Yeah. Did he uh, live in, was he in a lighthouse? But I, I, mean, I remember it existed, but I don't remember. <laughs> much about it I think that might be more my era than um, Fraggle Rock yeah. uh, I'm just going to have a really quick look because that might be my, yeah, <laughs> my answer yeah because Fraggle Rock was like mid 80s early 80s and to be honest I mean it, that was the point where it was it was a kids show and I wasn't really it, it was teenagers were enjoying it despite it being a kids show because it was Muppets kind of territory with uh, yeah. with Fraggle Rock I think it was on I'm just just too young to have um to recollect it properly. But yeah, Portland Bill was a stop-motion animated children's series uh, set in a fictional lighthouse. So that's my second favourite. Uh, I've, got, I've, got, <laughs> I've got memories of that. I'll just try and find links to all these things and, uh, <laughs> uh, and some, of the, uh, some of the horror of Fraggle Rock stuff and, uh, and put all the links in the show notes. <laughs> I'm going to go. I'll make it my mission for when this episode is released to track down the oldest horror Fraggle Rock joke I can find on the internet. Yeah. There will be some from the '90s, I'm sure. And we have to now do the Jonathan Creek version, where the horror of Fag Rock takes place in a windmill. The three windmill keepers. And I guess instead of a foghorn, you would have a windhorn. Yep, and the room would be like spinning around on the giant sails trying to get in. <laughs> and that would be how they would. They would have to, I wouldn't mention the ending, that it is Leela's who has the idea of um, of channeling somehow the, uh, the the light of the lighthouse, just which just perfectly happens to be what's needed to destroy an invading mothership. Yeah. But a, it's awesome that it's Leela's idea, and b, it's just lovely that it all ties up with it being the lighthouse becomes their weapon at the end, because of course it does, because it's Doctor Who, and that's just such a great tie-up of an ending, I think. <laughs> yeah, perfect, isn't it? Absolutely perfect. Um, I think it's it, what uh, um, it's what um, Paul Cornell says. I don't know if that's what you're going to say, Jason. Paul Cornell says in the making of, isn't it, about the the sort of three MacGuffins um, that there's the, yeah, the light. Two of them are used to defeat the third, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly where I was going yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's so beautifully worked out like that. It's excellent. Yeah, I'll have to keep this thing in about. Um, <laughs> The uh, the Jonathan Creek thing in there. I was just going to edit that out. Usually, if I uh, <laughs> that's the best bit, you're not going to edit that out. That's too good. That's too good. That's too good. Got to edit. If I say something stupid, I normally just <laughs> it normally doesn't make the edit. But I'll have to leave that in there. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, talking over this story. It's a, it's a terrific story, and. Um, I, I imagine that you've heard the audio, uh, Pete. I imagine it's a great kind of uh, works as a really nice kind of creepy, wintry tale to listen to as well. Uh, so the final, uh, the final should be really good. Uh, so finally, where can we find you both on the internet? Uh, I'm uh, Prof underscore quite a mess uh, when I talk about Doctor Who far too much. 
And I am at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, where all I've been doing since October 2020 has been <clears throat> talking about the classic series two episodes per night. Usually it is just delighted, uh, unvarnished love for the series. And then two days ago, I got to The Wheel in Space Part 1, which even worse is followed by The Wheel in Space Part 2. Rob Shearman has this great line on the Space Museum DVD saying the Space Museum has three problems. Episode 2, Episode 3, Episode 4. Well, by that logic, The Wheel in Space has six problems. Episode 1, Episode 2, Episode 3, Episode 4, Episode 5, and Episode 6. Then after I finish tonight, it is now a holiday weekend in the States because of President's Day. And over the next two nights, the rest of my three-day weekend, I'm going to be watching most of the Dominators. So if you follow me on Twitter as I'm watching through this horrible 11-episode segment of our favorite series, you might see my sanity starting to diminish. And I might just start to go like the original lighthouse keeper who went mad when the Beast invaded Fang Rock. Fortunately... The Mind Robber is waiting on the other side of that, and by the time this airs, hopefully I'll be on The Mind Robber in a much better frame of mind. But yeah, like Pete, 99% of what I talk about on Twitter is um, Doctor Who, and then I have the occasional uh, reference, topical reference to the impeachment trial uh, snuck in there for uh, – um, for variety, for flavor, because there were so many <laughs> political lines of Doctor Who that years later could be used to reference what's going on in America right now. Like Enemy of the World is a really great political story. Yeah. And then, of course, in The Wheel of Space, you have the base commander losing his mind, which uh, most of us in America saw in real time after the November election. <laughs> so it's 99% Doctor Who, uh, 1% politics, 99% praise for the series, 1% oh my god, it's The Wheel of Space, kill me now. <laughs> Peter Bryan must go now hashtag <laughs> R.I.P. Doctor Who 1968 <laughs> that's great no, they're, they're you'll, great, make, um, you'll make it through they're, they're great concise little um, uh, summation tweets of each story uh, Jason they're uh, really well worth following if um, if, uh, if anybody hasn't seen those yet they're great Yes, Mark, thanks for the retweets. You've been a very good friend of my Twitter feed, and I've doubled my number of followers since I started this journey, and your retweets have definitely helped. Anything that you retweet...